So it is September 9th, 2018. We've just come back from Romania. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, today is a day that you want to listen carefully while I preach. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I use words with specificity for a reason. I enjoy nomenclature, and I picked these ones. How's that for Louisiana education? I per I picked these particular words for a reason. Yes, yes, I'd be amazed at my grammar. If you do not like what we preach today, at the end of the message, you are more than welcome to call, call Radu Timku, because I got most of this from him in Romania. This will be a blessing from Romania. Today we're going to begin a series called Marriage and Spiritual Reproduction. Yes, everybody loves to talk about reproduction. Elder Charlie's gone today and uh, you know why the elders are away. We're actually going to focus on this for the entire month of September. If that makes you uncomfortable, it's going to be a long month. If something in that title just caused your heart to flutter a little bit. Hey, we are fruitful and we are multiplying. Now, a lot of people don't know what to do with this subject, so they might go to www.webmd. They could study their reproductive issues there. This morning, we're going to go to www.weddingmd. This will be a study in the weddings and mastered by divinity. I'm really excited because we're about to get into the Bible in a way that brings your life into focus. Do you want to do that? Are you sure you wouldn't rather talk about your neighbor's life? Say, preach to me, pastor. Say it one more time. Wow, you remember you said that because it's about to get seriously uncomfortable in here. This series will be for those who are already married. If you're married, say amen. Amen. It will be for those who want to get married. If you want to get married, say amen. And it will also be for those who are married in Christ because he is our husband. Now, if none of those three groups apply to you, then we preached a message back in July of 2015 titled STDs. Spiritually transmitted diseases. You might want to download that and listen to it and find out why you are not married to Christ, not married to someone else, not wanting to be married, because that is a spiritually transmitted disease. But for those of you that want healthy marriages full of spiritual reproduction, marriages to Christ, marriages to your spouse, and full of life, September is going to be a good month for you. You know, there is an awkward thing in our calendar. September is the ninth month of our year. Of course, October is the tenth month. But oct usually means eight. And sept usually means seven. That's because before we began to monkey with our calendar, this month, September, was usually the month that all seven feasts came to their climactic culmination. There was a trumpet that was blown on Yom Teruah. Where are you at, Carlos? I get that right? Yom Teruah. 
Carlos asked me to quit saying Rosh Hashanah. The biblical word is Yom Teruah. That horn that blew, that shofar that blew was like a first century husband coming for his bride. The day of atonement is the day that God would wed his people. And their honeymoon was on Sukkot. All of that was in September on our calendar, Tishri on theirs. I am excited to be talking about what marriage and spiritual union is all about. Because it is Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, I've divided today's message into seven short. Somebody say short. Short. Seven short points. They'll be like trumpets that are announcing something is about to happen. It will be something worth remembering. Are you awake today? Are you ready for our title today? Are you sure? Our title today is Limp Leadership and Flaccid Marriages. As an intransitive verb, limp means to walk with an uneven step or to proceed with great difficulty. If you make the word limp an adjective, it means without stiffness, firmness, without vitality, strength, or enthusiasm. Leadership that is difficult, uneven, without firmness, vitality, or enthusiasm is bad leadership. Anybody in here striving to be a bad leader? Flaccid. Flaccid is a synonym for limp. You probably understand that it usually appears in a list along with soft, flabby, drooping, lifeless. None of those are words that make you want to jump up and down and say, yes, that should describe me, are they? Limp leadership always produces flaccid, soft, drooping, lifeless marriages. Whether we're talking about your marriage to your spouse or your marriage to Christ. Let's hop into the word of God and find out how to glorify the king of kings through leadership that is worthy of his kingdom. Anybody want to be a kingdom leader in here today? We're going to be in Philippians 3 in verse 20. How many of you are very nervous about the guests that you brought today? The word of God is powerful. It will divide between joints and marrow. And there are so many very serious things that we have to say. And we're going to make those points in very serious ways. Because there's going to be a group of leaders that astound the kingdom of God come right out of this church. And it starts with husbands. Are you in Philippians 3? Have you discovered verse 20? But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Anybody experience the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? then your citizenship is no longer just from your birthplace. You may have been born in America, or Mexico, or Vietnam, or the west coast of Africa on the Ivory Coast, but you were also born into a very real kingdom. Somebody say it's a real kingdom. 
It doesn't need borders with huge walls because it requires the death to your own nature just to enter into it. And that's barrier enough. No wall building program in this kingdom. But like any kingdom, there are laws that govern how people in the kingdom behave. Today, I'm going to share with you seven requirements for a man to marry a woman. How many requirements? They're going to come straight from the text. And remember, we're not just talking about you marrying a woman. We're also talking about you being married to Christ. These are kingdom laws for life to exist. No different than any other kingdom on the earth. Our first requirement is found in the constitution of God. Does anybody know where the constitution of God is? Hold it up if you have it. Yes. Go ahead and turn to book one, section one, subsection the sixth day, and item 28. This is not a book for self-help. This is not a book to have a better you. This is a book that describes the kingdom of God on earth and how you must interact to be in the kingdom of God on earth. Say there when you're in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's such a fun word in Hebrew. You put the kibosh on it. I mean, you put the ultimate slap down on it. You take authority over anything that is there and is out of order. It's your job. You do it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Listen, before the Lord gave a woman to a man that he had made, he gave the man a purpose. Come on. Purpose comes before women, man. Do you hear me? What has to come before the girl of your dreams? The purpose of God. A man who is not filled with the purpose of God. Something that God himself has spoken into the man's ear. Won't know what to do with the woman when he gets her. It's a a phenomenal, sad thing. That we have so many people that have gotten married and God put them together and they go to a judge or a justice of the peace to put them apart. Friends, if God put you together, then a judge cannot take you apart. What happens to us is we don't know why we got married in the first place. We don't know why we're on the earth in the first place. We have no purpose. So when the marriage stops being entertaining, we get a drive through window divorce. For a man to get married without knowing his purpose will mean that he has limp leadership and a flaccid marriage. Your purpose is everything as a leader. The very first thing a man needs in his life is purpose. How many of you young men have been dreaming of the day that you'll get married? Yeah, some in the very back behind the camera, they're so shy. You might even know what you want her to look like. You might even envision the house that you'll live in. But without a purpose, what good would the house be? Your purpose is everything. 
He needs a purpose before a woman. What would you be leading that home towards if you don't know your purpose? Some of you are sitting there uncomfortable already because you realize that you're already married. You already have a home. You already have children and you have not the first clue why God put you on the planet. And so you've clung to bumper sticker Christianity that says I was made to worship. You've clung to bumper sticker Christianity that says I was just made to love the Lord. That is ridiculous churchy hawkwash. Every man, every single man was designed by God for a function, a purpose. When a man does not know his purpose, let me give you some characteristics. If I'm talking about you, remember, you asked me to preach to you today. The man vacillates from direction to direction, looking for something to accomplish, but feeling unfulfilled no matter what he does, because every direction he picks is only temporary. See, that's a man that doesn't know his purpose. He's trying, he's looking everywhere, and he's dragging a family through the process. When a man doesn't know his purpose, he becomes an unfaithful man. Because he hasn't heard from the Lord's own mouth regarding his primary function. And he looks for affirmation wherever he can get it. Oh, come on. How dangerous is it for a man to be looking for affirmation outside of God's mouth or his wife's arms? Mm. The man without a purpose is a volatile man. Because he experiences so many failures that result from not understanding who he is and what he's supposed to do. Now, ladies, don't you shout amen. You be very careful here. The life-changing power of the gospel is going to descend upon us. The gospel always elevates. It will cause every man in this room to rise to a higher station because no man wants to be a limp leader. Factless, faithless, ineffectual. Nobody wants that. And yet we have not been taught how to be something else by our own fathers most of the time. How many of you know Jesus Christ has a bride? Three of you. Four of you know that. How many of you know Jesus Christ has a bride? Are you happy to be that bride? Come on. For today's purposes, we're going to name Jesus Christ bride Ecclesia. That's a beautiful name, isn't it? Now we don't have to worry about Israel, the church, how we're together, how we're both brides, yet one bride. We're just going to say everybody who is called out is the bride of Jesus Christ called Ecclesia. Say, hi, hi. I'm Ecclesia. We got a good husband. Jesus had a purpose before he had a bride. In Luke 19, 9, he said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the purpose of Jesus Christ. Jesus had a purpose and he has endowed his bride's life with a purpose within his. There is no purpose in this room given by God that does not involve seeking and saving that which was lost. So if you believe your purpose is to be an electrician, you have greatly misunderstood your existence on this earth. If you believe your purpose is simply to worship, you have greatly misunderstood your purpose on this earth. God himself will speak to you a purpose within the husband's purpose because you are a 
ecclesia. You are the bride of Christ. Your function will always further His function because you are a part of Him. Turn with me to Ephesians, the second chapter and the tenth verse. Say there when you were there. Amen. For we, we ecclesia, we the called out ones, we the bride of Christ, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When God made you, when he called you to be his bride, it was because he has a purpose and you are joining in his purpose. You have some part of God's purpose. See, Jesus Christ is not a groom without a purpose. He's not aimless. He's not volatile. He's not unfaithful. He does not vacillate. In fact, he set out firmly, resolutely. The actual term in Hebrew is like granite towards Jerusalem to purchase his bride because he had a goal for you. If you're sitting in this room and you're a male, you should be thinking right now, what is the purpose for which I was born? If you're sitting in this room and you are female, you should be thinking, I will never lower myself to join a purposeless man. He better get purpose before he gets me. Come on now. He better get purpose before he gets me. If you are in the unfortunate situation of already having been joined by God to a man that has no idea what he's supposed to do, you better help him find purpose. Because he's going to lead you in a ditch. He'll do it with a smile. He'll do it loving you. But he'll have no idea how to accomplish the will of God on earth. Can I tell you, most marriages that I've met are purposeless. Why were you put on the planet? Well, to love the Lord, have a few kids. See if we could get them to become doctors or lawyers. That is so sad. It is so small. It's really limp. It's a flaccid marriage. That's not the life that God wanted your marriage to produce. He wants you to kick down the gates of hell and establish his kingdom on this planet. You were born again in Christ. And he has a purpose for you inside of his own purpose. When examining your purpose, it will always fit inside of Christ or it is not of Christ and should be rejected. Being a doctor is not a purpose, it's an occupation. Being a lawyer is not a, not a purpose, it's a curse. Oh, I'm sorry, Keith, are you here today? Uh, I'm just kidding, brother. A purpose has to come to you from God's mouth to your ears. A purpose is not something you get hired into because of your resume. It's not something you graduate from a school. And so now you are that. A purpose is something that God's mouth spoke to your ears. Every man who stands in the kingdom, this is what the kingdom is built on. That you can hear from God and you can raise a family to do the same. you got to know your purpose. Say, i got to know my purpose. I want to tell you that I was here with the Piros in Romania, and they know their purpose. It doesn't matter what language is being spoken. It doesn't matter where they are, whether it's 
Matthew or it's Cassidy, they spent 100% of their time trying to propel others into the presence of God. Because if they do that, then they are furthering the larger purpose of Jesus Christ, bringing people into his kingdom. When you've tasted of the kingdom and you see that it is good, you want more and you want others to have what you have. That's not limp leadership. That is standing up in Christ and being who God called you to be. We listen to the messages, big love and bold leadership that the Sutherlands were preaching. Everything about their life is to equip others for the kingdom of God. Man, even from Romania, we could feel the ripples going through the spiritual realm. They know their purpose and they are making a difference. Are you wandering around purposeless and dragging your family through that agony? You might need to turn your ear towards God's commands. You might need to let him speak into you the creature he made about the design that he made you for. You know, the very first thing that God ever gave a man was a purpose. It involved resistance. He'd have to put the kibosh on it. It involved so many things. He would spend the rest of his life marveling at how he could only do this if God helped him. So will you when you discover your purpose. A man must have a purpose before he has a woman. Say purpose before woman. woman. Ladies, do not accept a man that does not have a purpose. For a man to be firm, trustworthy, steadfast, a rock like Jesus, he must have a purpose or the man will be a limp leader and he will have a flaccid marriage. You ever meet people and they don't tell you who their spouse is? They're standing right next to each other and you're like, hi, I'm Eric. And they're like, hey, it's good to meet you. Who is this beautiful young lady beside you? We're looking at a purposeless man. He thought his purpose in marriage was for her to make him happy. And when she stopped making him happy, his marriage no longer had a purpose. Oh, come on. You don't know what's at stake here. Say, oh, well, we just grew apart. No, you abandoned your purpose. Oh, you know, we just fell out of love. Tell me, how does one do that? Because love's a commitment. (laughs) It's an action. You see, you have to have purpose before you have a spouse. You have to. And if you don't, it will show in every area of your life. The first thing that every man needs before he gets a woman is a purpose. You want to go into the second thing a man needs or do you want me to stop now? Okay. The second thing that a man needs is the presence of God. Look at Genesis 2.8. If you haven't figured this out, we're going to be in Genesis the entire time. Every other thing I say is simply going to accent a linear progression found within Genesis. Genesis 2.8. Do you want to learn something? Can I tell you you're not going to know what I'm about to tell you? You know, that's saying something in a church like this. There are pastors in this room. There are Bible students that are incredible in this room. Some of you are going to be extraordinary theologians in your own right. And I still know for sure that you don't know what I'm about to tell you. Does that interest you at all? Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Where did he put him? In Eden. Hmm. Eden was a physical place. It had geographical locators in this very same chapter. 
Number one, it said to be to the east. That ought to cause you to go east of what? Anytime you see a direction in the Bible. You know, if you don't understand the direction, put Israel in the center of it and you'll understand the direction perfectly. Because Israel is the center of the Bible. If God says a nation to the north, he means the north of Israel. If he says in a land to the east, then he means to the east of Israel. Israel is actually the apple of God's eye. To read the Bible without understanding Israel is to misunderstand God's story about Ecclesia, his beautiful bride. Not only was it in the east, it was said to be by the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, the Euphrates, a very special place on the planet. Now, so far, nobody's disagreed with that, right? You ever seen a Discovery Channel like, let's go see if we can find Eden because there's the Tigris and the Euphrates and perhaps we can extrapolate from there? Perhaps the Noahic flood altered the topography of the earth. Maybe that's what obscured Eden. Of course, that's not really the issue at all if you understand the biblical text. That's a misunderstanding of what Eden means and what is. Can you give me a slide back there, Joy? The word Eden is two different Strong's numbers. It's 5730 and 5731. Now, after you hear this, you might want those Strong's numbers because you're going to want to go look to see if I'm telling you the truth because you will have never heard it before in church. Eden is a complex subject. You know, the church doesn't like complex subjects anymore. What the church usually wants is show up and tell us the same nine or ten things we already know about Jesus, but do it in a new and exciting way every week so that we will be left totally unchallenged. You will be paid and you go home to your parsonage. That's not this pastorate. We enjoy being provocative. We want you to study and see whether or not we're right. As a feminine noun... Eden denotes sexual pleasure. I want to show it to you. It's Genesis 18 and verse 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. I rarely lie when I'm reading the scripture. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? That word is Eden as a feminine noun And it very specifically means the pleasure derived from sexual intercourse. Your translation actually toned it down because they don't think you can handle it. If you ever read Ezekiel, you will find many more things that American audiences are not fit to handle. But the Hebrews had no problem talking about these kind of subjects. That is not the only way Eden is used in the Bible. As a masculine noun, it denotes pleasantness delightfulness, splendidness. Psalm 36 and 8 is an example of that. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of Edens. It's translated in your Bible, delights. But the Hebrew text says Eden in the plural, and the noun being used there is in a masculine form. As a proper noun, It designates the place described in Genesis with all of the geographical locators. Do you find that an interesting range of meanings? It can be everything from a physical spot to pleasantness to the height of pleasure from an encounter between a married man and a married woman. My point is that the subject of Eden is full of double entendre, maybe more full than this message. 
It means a specific place on the planet where the man was in a delightful spot because he was with God. See, when God put the man in the garden because God put the man in the garden, he was with God in the garden. This is something totally lost on American audiences. We think God will be with us anywhere we go, no matter what we do. But when you are where he told you to be, doing what he told you to be, then you know that he is with you. Eden represented the one place on the planet that God put Adam. He didn't tell Adam you can go anywhere on the globe you want. He put him in one place. And he and God enjoyed fellowship together in the place That God put him. Eden represents the only place that the man could live and be in right standing and right order in the presence of God. Eden is when the kingdom is on earth. In fact, the book of Revelation finishes with an Eden-like picture. Because we are doing what he said to do, where he said to do it, and the earth has become a paradise. Somebody say you're looking for Eden. Long time before a man ever received a woman, he had to be put in God's presence. Eden was a location, but more than that, it was a state of being in God's presence perpetually. Because you were where he put you. Can you imagine the effect that disobedience has on this? By the way, those of you that love paleo, we have uh, an I-N, a Dalith, and a Noon in this. When you look up your paleo for those, you'll find that the I-N is to watch. You'll find that the Dalith is an entrance and a Noon is life. You're supposed to watch the entrance to life. Where is the entrance to life? The presence of God. Eden was a place, but Eden was a state of living. Can I tell you how many times I've seen people leave the presence of God and go try to drag a spouse kicking and screaming in to the presence of God, hoping that they'll be transformed there? Adam and Eve met in Eden. They didn't meet in a local bar and then try to make it right. They didn't meet on ChristianBootyCall.com or I gave up in Christianity website. They actually met in the presence of God. Where did you meet your spouse? Before a man ever receives a woman, he's supposed to be already standing in the presence of God, inviting her into it. You know why? Because you're innately a leader. And you can lead your family well, or you can lead your family poorly. Before God gave woman to the man, the Lord gave the man his purpose and his presence. How many people do you know that are trying to find their spouse outside of Eden? Think you gotta leave the church to go find someone. Be careful what you catch. Again, refer to an earlier series from July of 2015. Adam and Eve met for the very first time in the presence of God as God Himself introduced them. No man, no leader is fit unless he is living in the presence of God habitually. Guys, are you tensing up a little bit? How often are you supposed to be in Eden? You're supposed to walk around in Eden. I want to show you something that one of our brothers taught at a Bible study just last night. This is Exodus 33, 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face 
as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Let that engage your soul for a minute. Joshua was not in the presence because he had a problem. So many Christians will go meet with the Lord at an altar in church because they have a problem. That's not living in the presence. That's having a transaction with God's presence. Is a problem the only thing that drives you to go find the presence of the Lord? Because Adam lived in the presence of the Lord. Joshua was not there to solve a problem. He was there because he loved the presence of the Lord. In fact, it was Moses who was solving a problem. Joshua was just hanging out in his little Eden on earth. And it actually moved. The tent moved every time there was a camp. He was in a new Eden every time they moved the camp. Can I tell you, you can stand in the presence of God in many places on the earth, but there are many more places you can stand and you are not in the presence of God? How do you deal with that contradiction? When you are standing where he told you to stand, then you are in the presence of God. When you are standing somewhere other than where he told you to stand, you're under the judgment of God. The weight of that judgment will cause you to be a limp leader. It will make your marriage a flaccid marriage. The kingdom of God is based on a relationship to the presence. It is not based on a transaction for your salvation. Oh, now you're not listening. If you understood what I was saying, something inside your heart would begin to burn for a relationship with the presence of God and you would realize how much of your Christianity has been a transaction with Him. See, that's not a marriage. That's something else. You can find it down on Westheimer near the Montrose. That's something altogether different. And it's also described in the last book of the Bible, but it's not the bride of Christ. It's something else. Do you yearn for the presence of God? I'm not talking about being in church. I'm not talking about a good entertaining Bible study. I'm talking about in the center of your soul. Are you yearning to spend more time with God? Because you're not supposed to get a wife before you have both purpose and presence. Wow, don't you wish you knew these things? Jesus Christ said... In John eight twenty nine, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. See, a man must have a purpose and must know where God has called him to stand in the presence or how can he lead. Men who float aimlessly in search of God's presence are limp leaders. Jesus was always in the presence of God, and that is where he and his bride dwell together. Because he was in the presence of God, others put their faith in him. They became the ecclesia of God. They became the beautiful bride of God. Where do we meet him? In the presence of God. Look at me, single people, wherever you are. If you think you can run outside of the presence of God, and have a successful marriage, then acknowledge you are breaking the kingdom law and expecting a kiss when you might be receiving a curse. Wow. Now take a deep breath. Because the truth is, almost all of us did this. Jesus Christ took the curse that we deserve so that you might be blessed. Blessed. 
Do not use that blessing as an excuse to continue in ignorant, sinful ways. Let's wake up now. A man must have a purpose before he has a bride. He must have the presence of God before he has a bride. The third thing a man needs before he is given a wife or any leader is given any following is found in Genesis 2.15. We've gone from Genesis 1.28 to Genesis 2.8 to now Genesis 2.15. We're following a linear progression in the constitution of God's word. I'm not making these things up. I didn't just pull them out of some sermon series. If you ever find a sermon series titled what we title ours, let me know. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work. Come on, somebody say, work before women. Come on, young man, you cannot have a woman until you're working. You need a J-O-B before you get a bride. There has God gave man a job before a bride. You know, ladies, I thought there'd be an amen in here. Some of you girls are tired because you've been carrying a load you weren't supposed to carry. You're supposed to find your man with a purpose, in the presence of God, with work. No woman should be attached to a man that is not already doing those three things because that's not how God did it. Amen, amen. It's, It's okay. I'm preaching better than you're listening, though. I mean, it's, I only traveled like 36 hours to be here. It's okay. A man must have a job before he gets his girl. Purpose and employment are two very different things. I, I mean, you really got to grab hold of this. Name some jobs in the room. Just, just throw out an employment and, and don't embarrass me. So none of the dirty uh, uh, medical profession. Electrician, carpenter, next door painting. Come on, give me some. Hey, if you have more melatonin in your skin than some of these crackers that are in here, talk to them, tell them it's okay to speak in church. They're going to be okay. Nobody has ever been struck dead for speaking in church. That's right. Help a brother out. An electrician may work on electrical outlets for employment. But his purpose might be to propel people into the presence of God. You know how he learned that from? Pastor Matthew Piro. He was an electrician for many years as his employment. When Cassidy found him, she didn't find a dog with no job. She found a man of God with purpose in his heart, with presence surrounding him. And he had a J-O-B. I suspect that pretty young thing would have just kept on walking. Because she's a smart girl. A salesman may spend his entire day talking about investments, mortgages, and annuities. But his purpose might just be to excite people about the reality of the kingdom. When I found Miss Jennifer. Man, do I love Miss Jennifer. Oh, there are many beautiful women in Romania. But not one of them comes close to my sexy grandma right there. Jennifer worshipped in other languages. She worshipped in other tongues. Man, I get so excited to watch her in the presence of God. 
That's what joined us together. She saw a young man that was full of purpose, who was addicted to the presence of God. And I was literally swinging a sledgehammer, breaking concrete every day, because I knew I needed work before I could have a woman. Somebody said that they would get a bobcat with a, a hydraulic jackhammer on it, and they would spend a certain amount on this to break up an entire parking lot. And I said, I have a 16-pound mole in the truck. Give me the money and I'll do the job. Listen, when you love somebody, a job is where you show yourself faithful. It's where you're developed. The fact that it's meaningless sometimes and pointless sometimes is a part of the test. Trust me. If it was fun every day, son, they wouldn't pay you. I knew a high school principal who spent most of his day listening to people just like us telling why our children are not really the problem. It's somebody else's kid. But that was not his purpose. That was his employment. His purpose was to equip people to perform them, perform their service in the kingdom of God. I've watched the Sutherlands go through job after job that I thought was beneath them. But what the Lord was really doing is developing them. He will use your work to develop you. Come on, men. You ready? Say, develop me, Lord. Develop me, Lord. Build me. I want to be built by you. Now get off your salvation and go to work. Your blessed assurance is getting fat. It's time to get out there and work. Ladies, you ought to be attracted to a man who is full of purpose, who is standing in the presence and has a J-O-B. If he gives up every time it's difficult, what happens when you're difficult? Not that my girl is ever difficult. I mean, I know no JJ's girls, not, but some of you brothers out there, y'all got some difficult wives. I mean, you know, it's an awful lot of fun to be married for a while. And then you got those days. <laughs> you know those, those, those days. I put mine on a calendar just to remind me to pray up. If you can't be trained in difficult employment, how are you ever going to take on pastoring a human being? If you can't fight through discouragement and distress in a workplace because of an evil boss and a difficult task, what is it going to be when the one that you love the most looks at you and guts you with a razor-sharp tongue? I can't just leave the men uncomfortable now, can I, ladies? See, a man is very rarely walked into a parking lot and go, oh, the lighting's not so good. I'm, I'm kind of worried that I might be assaulted. A man very rarely walks into a room and says, I can't believe these people are objectifying me. Did you hear what they said about me? But a woman lives under this pressure all of the time. And since she doesn't have the bone structure and the muscle mass that you do, she develops a razor in, in her mouth. You've been married long enough, you know she knows just what to say, right? One time Jennifer smacked me and I laughed at her. I mean, it was funny. You know, it's like, <laughs> but that's cute. Was that supposed to hurt? And she said, do you feel like a man now? Oh, my God. 
I was done. Uh, it's like, take this one back to her father. She's defective. Not every day is an easy day, friends. If you can't fight through a difficult work week, how are you ever going to fight through difficult times in your marriage? You need work before you need a woman. If you believe me, you'd be looking hard for a job and not an easy one. One that was challenging in every way. One that caused you to have to lean on the living God just to make it through. Because when you made it through, you would know you could make it through anything. Acts 18 and verse 3. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. If you don't recognize the context of Acts 18, which is in the Newer Testament Bill of Rights, Aquila, Priscilla, and Paul were tent makers by profession. But they were apostles by kingdom purpose. There is a difference between your profession and your purpose. So don't you dare tell me that you remodel for your kingdom purpose. Don't don't tell me that you're a salesman for your kingdom purpose. All you're really saying is I don't know what to say. So I'm going to fill in the blank with something stupid. It would be a whole lot better to leave your mouth closed. And let us wonder whether you were stupid. Than to open it and remove all doubt. Sometimes we are stupid in the kingdom. You can be spirit-filled and stupid. Look at Jephthah's life. I mean, the Bible's full of it. God is capable of inspiring you to greatness. But when we don't understand our own constitution, we don't know how we should live. You need a purpose before a woman. You need the presence before a woman. You need work before a woman. A man must work to show himself faithful in provision before he is ever given precious lives to care for. See, your work is preparing you. Man, when I was single, if I didn't like what was being said, I was like, it's a competitive work environment. You just lost me. And I went to work for some other hamburger slinging organization. But when I got a wife, now... There was so much more pressure involved, so much more tension on the line. You can't believe the amount of abuse that I took at one construction company. The devil put a midget with a giant mouth in my face. His favorite game was to see how far he could push the Christian. But I knew something. At the end of the day, I was going home to my beautiful ecclesia. He was going home with that giant, nasty mouth he had. After a year working in that environment, he finally broke down and told me. His wife committed adultery on him with his brother. And he had committed adultery before that. And I realized why he was such a limp leader with such a flaccid life. He wasn't doing it God's way. And I thought, man, that's not the life that God has for you. God gave Adam a job long before he gave him a bride. Second Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. How many of you take the Bible literally? 
Oh yeah, man, pastor, we're evangelicals. We're fundamentalists. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. God breathed it onto the text. Yeah, but you sure feed somebody that is not working. Why? God himself recorded in his word. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. You're more compassionate than God. Keep doing it your way. See what it gets you. That's limp leadership. That lacks a spiritual spine. Cannot look at somebody and tell them the harsh reality of God's kingdom. Because as harsh as it ever is, it's that much more merciful. You don't know what mercy is unless you have met harsh realities. That's one of the problems in the American church. We no longer stand on the actual word. We stand on the word as we would like it to be. Not only should a man not have a wife without first having a job, he shouldn't be allowed to eat. Put down your Xbox. Put down the computer games. Get off the internet. Put down the hamburger that your daddy or the United States government bought you and get a J-O-B. That is a first step in faithfulness. And if a man knows his purpose and he's in the presence of God, the presence of God will lead you into a workplace where you will extend the presence of God. Mark 6 verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What, what's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? If you're Catholic, you're going to take offense at this. Jesus Christ was a perfect man. A perfect groom, the ultimate leader, and Jesus had a job. He was a carpenter before he was the savior of the world. Are you trying to be the savior of the world and you haven't even mastered a job? He was a carpenter by occupation, but he was the savior of the world by kingdom purpose. There's a difference between your profession and your purpose. Your profession helps prepare you. Your purpose is with you no matter what your profession is. Before you are able to handle the responsibilities of having a wife, before you are fit to lead others, you must have a purpose that you heard from God's mouth. You must live in the presence of God. And you must have a job. Am I getting through to anybody yet? The fourth thing a man needs. Are these points short enough for you? Are they concise enough? I mean, okay. The fourth thing a man needs before a woman springs up right before him. Is also found in Genesis 2.15. This might be the hardest to understand and it's the most essential that you understand. So if I've offended you, if I've hurt your feelings, if I put you to sleep, get over yourself, get over me, and listen for just a minute to what the Lord's saying. If when you walk out of here, you don't think he was ministering to you, we'll make an agreement that it'll be okay, you don't come back. But if he's dealing with you about... Then how many times must he deal with you before you do it? We start off 
with a purpose. We live in the presence. Then God gives us work. Genesis 2.15, the word for work there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work. Is a Hebrew word called abad. It's Strong's number 5647. And I want to show you something about it. It's not work as in scratching the soil gardening. That came after the fall. This work could be translated cultivate. It doesn't just mean to toil and labor. It means that life must come from what you're doing. Oh, you're not getting it yet and it's okay because you're going to. The man was not just toiling at the ground. He was not just working by the sweat of his brow. That came later. His work had to transform the environment so that it produced life. Man is God's agent on the earth. And when a man works, it ought to be transforming or cultivating the environment around him. A man must not only work, he must also cultivate. So, well, why is that so important? I want to read to you from the complete word study dictionary. Abad. When the focus of the work is the Lord, it is a religious service to worship Him. Moreover, in these cases, the word does not have connotations of toilsome labor, but instead of a joyful experience of liberation. It says, see Exodus 3.12, Exodus 4.23, Exodus 7.16, Joshua 24.15, and the 18th verse. In all of these verses, the same word for work is translated worship or serve. It's almost like the New Testament writers understood this. Do you remember Colossians says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart? That's Colossians 3.23. As working for the Lord, not men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever your profession, wherever your work is, you are not working for them. You are working for the Lord. He put you in a situation as an electrician, a salesman, a high school principal, because you are His agent on earth. He wanted to see whether you could cultivate life in the situation that He put you in. Oh, come on. Being an electrician is not about putting in electrical outlets. Being a high school principal is not hearing why little Johnny Susie uh, didn't really do what the teacher clearly saw them doing. Being a salesman is not really about the next sale. It's about how you infect the environment around you while you're doing it. God didn't say, I want you to pick up a Maddox. I want you to pick up a gardening tool, a pickaxe, and go beat the ground. And that will be your work. It was not futile. It was not aimless. He invited him to create life along with God. Why would that be important for a man to cultivate before he gets a wife? Before the man could receive a woman, he not only had to have a job, he had to treat the job like he was working for the Lord and cultivate an environment that produces life. God never gives a man a finished product. Never. He gives him raw materials and expects the man to cultivate it, to participate with the Lord in bringing something about, something that is a partnership between God and man. He wants to see if in your daily task, while you have a purpose and you're living in His presence at your job, does it cultivate life? 
I'm going to give you an example. As long as I've known Rick Lawhon, he's done some of the hardest work that I've ever seen men do. He's one of the more talented craftsmen I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. But everywhere that he goes, people get saved. They get discipled. No matter whether he's working on a valve, a transmission, framing a house, or installing plumbing, people like Justin Treister come out of his ministry. He is cultivating something. Now, the thing is... To cultivate something requires you to put it in the ground. It requires you to cover it up. It requires you to water it. It requires there to be faith that God will make something grow. Ladies, if your husband or the man you hope to marry is not cultivating anything in his workplace, then what's going to happen on those days that he doesn't see anything grow in you? By cultivate, I mean bring out the best. God will never give a man a finished woman. He gives you raw materials that you must cultivate. Come on now. Wives in the room, you're missing a good opportunity. I'm going to give you an example, and then I'll come back to the good opportunity. Because then I think you'll get it. Let's just suppose, husband, that you've become unhappy with your wife's attitude. So you begin to criticize her instead of cultivate her. Maybe you're unhappy with your wife's body. So you've been criticizing her instead of cultivating her. What would it look like to cultivate? Well, how about you get your apathetic self up in the morning before work? You say, come on, sweetheart, let's go to the gym together. And whatever you expected her to do, she only did as she was following you to do it. That would be cultivating. But it's easier to sit back and criticize. Husband, you don't like her dress, so you criticize her. Or you could go to the store with her and buy the dresses that you would like to see her in. That would be cultivating her. Help me out, sweetheart. Look, look, you ready, ladies? You, you, if there's a married woman in the house, raise your hand. Let me see who you are. Help me out. Look at your husband. Turn to him. Grab him by the shoulders right now. Say, cultivate me, baby. Cultivate me, baby. Cultivate me, baby. Say, I can't believe that pastor talks like that. You should read the Bible. You have no idea what is in the Bible. The Bible is the book. Everybody thinks they know what it's in because they've never read it. Man, if I told you my favorite verses in the Bible, you would blush worse than you're blushing now. The man must be full of purpose. He must be in the presence of God. He must be working and he has to demonstrate cultivation unto life because it's going to take a lot of cultivation to take the woman that God gives you and make her the woman that God wants her to be. A big problem with husbands is we no longer see that as our responsibility. But it is. Weak men want to marry a finished product. They look at them on their phones. They fantasize about them. They see them in artistic drawings or photoshopped magazines. There is no such thing as a finished product. Your wife will be what you make her. And so if you're not making anything now, then you should never be entrusted with a wife. Limp leaders often resort to criticizing their wife without lifting a finger to cultivate her. If you're unhappy with your wife and you've been married for more than a few months, you're actually unhappy with your own limp leadership. You have become a flaccid fool. 
I love you. <laughs> it's always been your job to bring out the best in her. And now you're blaming your failure on her. We need to repent and ask the Lord's help. We need to become men. <laughs> I can tell some of you didn't like what I said. So I'm going to prove it to you. Jesus' wife, what was her name again? She wasn't much to look at when he got engaged to her. Not of noble birth. Not wise by human standards. She ran through the ugly forest and lived at every tree. But the book of Revelation presents her as radiant on the day of her wedding. How does she get that way? Are you a finished product or is Jesus Christ cultivating you? Does he wait for you to get right? Or does he accept you, credit you with his righteousness, and then help you to live in that righteousness? Tell me, husbands, it's not your job. See, that's because you don't understand the constitution of your word. A man must demonstrate the ability to cultivate or he will curse the gift God gives him because he doesn't know how to cultivate it. See, to refuse to cultivate what God put in your care is actually to curse it. Because weeds grow naturally, but righteousness does not. It's going to take effort. You're going to have to work at it. That's why she should have watched you work in your job and see how you're doing. And when she saw incredible work ethic, she thought, maybe this guy will work with me. You got to have a job before you have a wife. You have to learn to cultivate. Can you be put in any situation and bring life out of it? Because you're going to be put in worse situations married without any question. Ephesians 5.25 is the text on this issue. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with the water through the word. Christ washes the church with his word. A husband is supposed to do what to the wife? Wash her with the word. That's cultivating. We're not an agricultural society anymore. So you forget how hard it was to walk out to a dry, dusty field. Scratch the earth. Break it up. Break up the fallow ground. Put a seed in that. And then wait and pray and water and fight through drought and fight through storms and fight through all of those things to see something come out of the ground. But man, people who do it. Have you ever been at somebody's? I mean, I remember Matthew Pirro grew a little fig tree. Now, I'm going to be honest, the fig tree looked rather meager to me, right? But Matt loved his fig tree. I mean, he didn't want anybody near it. He moved the trampoline away from it. The girls were threatened on the punishment of death if they touched his fig tree. Matt would swear that a fig off of his fig tree tastes better than any fig in the world. Because when you've cultivated something, you love it. Cultivate me, baby. Cultivate me, baby. Cultivate me, baby. When you've put hard work into it. When every bit of incremental progress is yours and yours alone, you love it, it tastes better to you than anybody in the world. Verse 27 is the best. And to present her to himself, a radiant church. See, the result of you cultivating your spouse is that you get the spouse that you always wanted. God gives you a raw material, man, but it's your job to cultivate her into the wife that you always wanted. 
If she's not the wife that you want, don't look for another. You'll screw her up the same way you followed up this one. Instead, cultivate her. You're sitting in this room. You could be really upset, man. I don't like what you're saying because I've been married more than once. Hey, if the shoe fit, where's it? You, you need to come to grips with something. Jesus Christ will forgive you, but that does not equip you. If you already made these mistakes and now you're too proud to admit it, do you know what you'll do? You'll make them again. The key to being blessed in Christ is to learn to cultivate. You must learn to cultivate before you ever enter into matrimony. And if you're already in matrimony and you're just now learning to cultivate, man, you better ask Christ to help you. And He will. He will. This is not condemnation. This is conviction to a higher level. We're about to do marriage counseling with so many families in the church because we love you and we know what it takes to win. In all the years that we've been doing ministry, man, we've lost so few battles. I don't know anybody that's got a record like ours. But it's because we believe that it all starts with the male role. And if you get the man right, everything else in his house will follow. We believe that. Church, I want you to understand something. If you're a man sitting in this room, you're being readied for responsibility. If you're already a man with responsibility, we're going to have to take it seriously. And if you've demonstrated failure in your responsibility, don't you shift it to someone else. Definitely not your helpmate. Stand up like a man and learn to cultivate. Yeah, I can't believe, ladies. What's wrong with you? Are you scared of him? You want me to come sit next to you so you can tell him what you really think? A man must learn to cultivate before being given a woman because she will be the result of his leadership as a gift given by God right back to the man. You hear me here? The reason that pastors are chosen based on how they run and cultivate their households is because a church is the same way. The congregation you're given is raw material, but they become exactly what you make them into. So if you don't like them, it's a reflection of your poor leadership. But man, when you see growth... When you see families like the Halls persevere and get a little better every year. When you see Gabrielle hang in there, stand and fight and smile and worship and love the Lord's presence. You love what you help to cultivate like nobody else. You need to be looking for a man who has a purpose. You need to be looking for a man who stands in the presence. A man who works and a man who in his work is cultivating life everywhere he goes. Ladies, if you're considering a man with no demonstrated capacity to cultivate, that is to bring out the best in his workplace, what confidence could you have that he won't give up on you too when it becomes difficult? Men, we don't marry a finished product. It is our job to perfect the priceless gift that God gives us. Are you ready to move on to the fifth thing? Did y'all already know all of that? Should Okay, I'm just I'm just curious. The fifth thing that a man or any leader seeking a following must have before God gives him the woman or those who follow him is he must be able to protect. I'm not making this up. This is not the result of me going to a Mennonite conference and having to deal with pusillanimous pacifist This is right here in the Word. 
Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and, and take care of it. Or one translation said, guard it. That's because this is the Hebrew word shamar. Strong's number 8104. I want to read you its definition. A verb meaning to watch, to keep, to preserve, to guard, to be careful, to watch over, to watch carefully over, to be on one's guard. The verb means to watch, to guard, to care for. Adam was to watch over and care for the Garden of Eden where the Lord had placed him. See, when God gives you a purpose and you find God's presence and you're standing in the presence of God working, and you begin to bring forth life, God says you protect what you and I partnered to produce. See, it's your godly offspring. It is what is happening around you and you're supposed to protect it. When you see somebody that has no concern for the growth of others, when you see somebody who is not protecting what God and He partnered to build, then He won't protect you either. The fifth thing that God told man was that he had to protect the very place that God had put him in his presence, given him a job, and brought forth life in. Before man was ever given a woman, he had to protect what he cultivated. The man was given a greater bone density. The man was given a larger muscle mass. The man had to protect what God had entrusted to him before a woman was ever in his view. How many little girls dream of marrying a feckless wimp? Somebody who cowers, who doesn't have the courage to walk through a door. I've never in all of my life heard a fairy tale, uh, a story of human emotion where a young lady is waiting for some weak-willed daffodil to show up and uh, sweep her off of the feet. It's always a, a knight in shining armor. It's always somebody who fights a dragon. It is always somebody who stands up to unbelievable odds because she is worth it. Christians, we so misunderstand this topic. For many, many years, I misunderstood it. I, I've been slapped in the face, had guns put to my head, been kicked in the tea. I, I don't even tell you the things that have happened to me because of the gospel. But what I do want to share with you clearly, it is a choice to lay down my life. A choice that is entirely different than my duty to protect my wife and my daughter. Exodus 15, 3, I'm going to run through these quickly. You write them down. It says, the Lord is a warrior. That is his name. They had no moral ambiguity about God killing Egyptians to protect his ecclesia. He left a whole nation in destruction because of his wife. In Psalm 82, verse 3, Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. To rescue and deliver from a real physical hand of the wicked is godly. You know? To see somebody being assaulted and walk the other way because you think that the Lord has called you to be a pacifist is to misunderstand the scripture. God gave that life. God entrusted that life to someone and he expected that person to protect that life. If they chose to lay it down for the gospel, it was a choice. Not because somebody was taking it from them. 
Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those who are being led away to death. Hold back those who are staggering towards their slaughter. If you say we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? Man, do you hear that? God will not hold a coward innocent. The man who claims pacifism while people are being molested, abused, and murdered has failed them morally, and God will hold him accountable in a judgment. Ladies, it's not just what you desire, it's what God expects. If God entrusted the garden to him, entrusted the presence to him, entrusted a purpose to him, entrusted a job to him, and the ability to cultivate to him, he expected him to shamar, to guard it. To guard it with his life. In Genesis 14, Abraham rescues his whole family. In Matthew 8 verse 9, soldiers come and talk to Jesus. And Jesus says they have great faith, greater than any that he found in Israel. In Luke 3 14, another soldier talks to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't tell him to quit being a soldier. He says just don't extort people. In Paul's letters to Timothy, the soldier is the model example of an obedient Christian. In Acts 10, 7, the first Gentile on the planet to get filled with the Holy Ghost is not just a soldier, he's a leader of soldiers. Christians are supposed to protect what God has entrusted to us. And if you're in the presence of God, He will tell you when it is time to lay down your life. Please don't think... That Jesus Christ does not expect you to protect the life of the people he's entrusted to you. He very much does. In John 17, Jesus said that he protected his bride while he was with them. Before a man ever receives a woman, he must learn to protect what God has entrusted to him. I'm not speaking about macho bravado. I'm speaking about both physical And spiritual threat. But can I tell you the spiritual becomes very physical. When somebody wants to hurt your family. Before anybody ever considers a spouse. You need to find someone in the purpose of God. In the presence of God. With a job that God gave him. He's cultivating and bringing forth life. And he is willing to lose his life to protect it. Are you ready for the sixth thing that you must have. Before you receive a spouse. Do you all want that? This is found in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The sixth thing a man must possess is the very word of God. Now we live in a very politically correct society. And we sometimes don't like the implications that are right there in the word for us. Up to this moment, it's important that you note the woman is not even present. So did she hear God say, you must not eat from the tree? No, it's not possible that she heard it because she is not even there. There is no record of God ever telling the woman his word, especially about the tree. The responsibility is clearly given to the man. Whose responsibility is it to possess the word? The man's. 
James 1.21 says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word of God planted in you, which can save you. Did you hear that? It can save you. A man possessing the word does not indicate that the man will in fact do what it says and be saved. Possessing the word is not even enough. It's got to be planted in you in a way that saves you. See, meeting somebody in church that can quote scripture, that's not enough. You know how many people I've met in church that have been in church for decades and wasted those decades? All of the time. It's the majority of Christians that I meet. Because they still don't know their purpose. They, they still are not producing what God put them on the planet to produce. And what's worse is they're prideful because of the years that they have. Oh, come on, church. You have to possess the word. What an awesome responsibility it is that the word's planted in you. You know what 1 Peter 1.23 says? For you have been chosen, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God is an imperishable seed. How interesting that the man was a gardener. He's supposed to cultivate it. He's supposed to work at it. He's supposed to to live in the presence. He's supposed to be filled with purpose. He should see those things in the Word every time he looks in the Word. What an honor it is to receive the Word of God. How many of you have Bibles in your hands right now? Church, the six things found in Genesis... Before a man can have a woman. Let's put that slide up. I want you to see them in the order they appear in the scripture from the scripture. All we did was walk from Genesis 1.28 through Genesis 2.17. The man's purpose is found in Genesis 1.28. The man being in God's presence is found in Genesis 2.8. In Genesis 2.15, item 3, his job. Item 4, his cultivation. And item 5, protection are there. In Genesis 26, or 2 verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Possessing the word. He does not have a woman yet. Put Genesis 2.18 on the screen. By the way, 2.18 comes after 2.17. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man. Or another way to say it is this man To be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Why this man? Because this man is full of the purpose of God. He's in the presence of God. He has a job. He knows how to cultivate. He will protect what God has given him. And he possesses the word. That kind of man should not be alone. Do you know know what follows that? Well, let's just break it down then. A man who doesn't know his purpose, doesn't live in the presence, doesn't have a job, can't cultivate, has never protected anything, and is not possessed by the Word, that man should be alone. Dear God, don't multiply more of what you are. The world's got enough of them. We don't need any more. Leave that man alone. I sure am glad you're here, Tamika. Are you listening, single men? Are you listening, single women? 
These principles are as true of marriage as they are of our marriage to Christ. In Christ, when you know your purpose, when you live in his presence, when you see your job as working for him, and in that job you cultivate his kingdom, and you protect whatever he has given you, and you possess the word, then you are fit to be joined in Christ, and you are spiritually reproducing. Now, if you're married, and your abilities in these areas are limp and flaccid, and you know what you have to do, To produce life. The question remains. Will you rise up and do it? Or will you simply sit back and find an excuse? Because apathy is exactly how you got where you are. You got to firm up your purpose. You better stand up in the presence of God. You better show rock-like faithfulness in your job. You better let the blood flow of Christ circulate through you to cultivate your spouse. You can't shrink back. You have to rise to the challenge of protecting what God has given you. The word of God is the only firm, reliable, trustworthy, faultless, unfailing thing you possessed. And it is what makes you a man. Without it, you have no hope. All morning I've been saying that there are seven things that a man must have before God gives him a woman. And we've only covered six. That's because in Genesis 2.21, after demonstrating these six prerequisite, God indeed gave Adam a woman. God gave Adam a woman after only mastering six things. But how well did their marriage turn out? How long did the goodness last? He gets her in Genesis 2.21 and by Genesis 3.15, they've already screwed up the entire world. That's because the seventh thing is implied in the text. Husband, if you were the one that was given the word, you were supposed to give the word to her. You were supposed to teach her. You may not see it this way, but the Bible presents it this way. The first and foremost teacher in every house is the husband. And you are teaching your family something through your apathy or your action. It is your job before any other person's job to give your family the word. You're supposed to have heard from the mouth of God about your purpose. You're supposed to, from there... Live in His presence and teach them to do so. When you go to work, it's not to get away from them. It's to provide for them. And they learn from watching you do it. When you cultivate something from that job that is more than a profession, they see it. That's the point. You're supposed to be teaching your family. 1 Timothy 2.14 says so clearly, and Adam was not the one deceived. I know that's bad news for the equal rights movement. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. I didn't say it. Paul said it. And when he says it, it's because Adam received the word of God. He made a choice to break the word of God. Eve was deceived. She added to the word. He didn't adequately teach her. God said that you may not eat from the tree. She said to the serpent, I can't even touch it. You know what's wrong with you adding to the word? If we God says don't touch it, I'm sorry, don't eat it, and you say don't touch it or eat it, what happens when somebody touches it and they don't die? 
Then they assume that they can eat it and not die. You don't have the right to alter God's word. As God has given it to you, you must give it to them. Not as God gave it to some pastor. Not as God gave it to some denomination. As God gave it to you. You have a duty to raise your family in the word of God. You can blame somebody else, but on that day, God will be holding you accountable. Adam knew the word. Eve was never given the word by God. God expected Adam to teach Eve the word. All right. We're near that point. But as I'm looking around, I'm worried that you've glazed over. So I want to ask you a real life question. How many of you wives have ever asked your husband, Honey, what do you think? Now, why do we have hands in here? What happened? Cass? Yes. How many of you wives have ever said, hey, honey, what do you think? Yes. Uh, hey, honey, what do you think about this dress? Hey, honey, what do you think we should do tomorrow because that couple's coming over? Um, hey, honey, what, what do we do about the children's school, right? And what does the husband say? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? That's the dumbest answer in the history of mankind. That is the perfect example of a limp leader with a flaccid marriage. Oh, I don't have any opinion. I haven't invested enough in anything you care about to have an opinion about it. You coward. That's not cultivating her. Do you know why she's asking you, what do you think? She's asking you, what do you think? Because from the first woman to the last woman, God put in them a drive and a desire for knowledge and leadership. And if they don't get knowledge and leadership from you, husband, where do they go to get it? You got it, some serpent. How'd that work out for us? If Adam gave Eve what she needed, Eve wouldn't have been seeking it from a devil. See, it always starts with a man. God said to Adam, by the way, because you listened to your wife. See, he didn't have an opinion. She had the opinion and he submitted to it. Men, can I tell you, when your wife asks you, what do you think? You ought to have heard from God and tell her what God thinks. You are his agent on the earth. When you leave this kind of void, it is limp leadership. It is flaccid in every sense of the word. And it will never produce life. you got to grow a spine. you got to be able to look her in the eye and tell her what you really think. Remember, she looked at you earlier and said, Cultivate me, baby. Cultivate me, baby. Cultivate me. She wants to know. You think she doesn't want to know. Or you're just too lazy to care. That's not the kind of man that is fit to have a spouse. Can I say that when I preach like this, It bothers me. I didn't sleep just an awful lot last night. And I woke up without an alarm clock before 5 a.m. today, which is quite a miracle. It's because when I look at the seven requirements, I see so many things that I'm not doing right. And I suspect that you do too. But we have a perfect Husband, we're not only husbands, we're also a bride. Anything that we're asking of our wife, Jesus has asked of us. And anything our wife is asking of us, we see in Jesus. 
Today is a chance for us to correct these things. If she doesn't get the answer from you, she's liable to get it from someone she shouldn't. How do you find the answer, though? Have you ever been asked that? It's just way out of your depth. My wife is a bright girl. She asks me questions sometimes. I'm like, the God's honest truth is I don't know. Of course, I do know my purpose. I do live in his presence. I have been faithful on my job. I cultivate the best in my wife and my family. I protect her physically and spiritually. And I possess the word of God. So if I will just stop and listen for a moment. Out of what God has already given me will come the answer that she needs. You will know what to say to her and not abdicate your God-given responsibility when you are doing the previous six things. A man was designed by God to teach his family the word, not bring them to church. You are a pastor to your family before anyone else. I want to tell you to teach the word of God. Now, ladies, if you're sitting out there, I have given you a roadmap that will save you heartache. There are people in this church that were still waiting for the scars to heal from not knowing this. And you can know it now. We have so many groups of people. Husbands, are you leading your wives as Christ leads the church? Wives, are you aiding Or hindering your husband in the pursuit of these things. Because only he can cultivate you. Single ladies. Is this what Christ is doing in your life? Or are you treating him as less than a husband? And being tempted to receive a husband that is less than Christ? Single men. You have to receive these things from the Lord. Before you receive a wife. So stop asking us when your wife will come. We've reached that place in the message. We're going to ask Matthew to the stage. We're going to ask Abimbola to grab a microphone. I am going through the month of September. To tackle every one of these issues. Like if you thought this was a provocative message. Come next week. It gets better or worse. Depending on how you view things. We're going to have the most frank discussion on the planet next week. Ben wants to talk to you not so much about these next few minutes, but the next days, weeks, and months of your life. Can we put Philippians 2, verse 12 on the screen? Actually, can we stand to our feet as well? It says... Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence. It's so easy to be in this setting. It's so easy to hear a word like that and agree and say, the Lord has shown me so many things, so many areas in my life where I'm lacking and I know I need to get it right. But it goes on to say this. Go back one. It goes on to say, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. What we do 10 minutes from now 
lets you know how much that word impacted you. What you do tomorrow morning lets you know how much that word impacted you. It's not about coming down to the altar. It's about what do you do when you leave the altar. It goes on to say, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm single. I don't have a wife. But I'm listening to that word, and it's a roadmap for me of God's purpose for my life. And it says I have to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. You know what that means? I have to be willing to fight for this. In the very same way, you have to be willing to fight for your marriage, fight for your wife, fight for your children, fight for what God has already put in front of you. But this is the hope that we have. It says this in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, if you would just say, Lord, I would do what you want me to do. I would go wherever you want me to do. I would cultivate what you've put right in front of me. It says in his word that he will work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. See, when we're done here, I'm going to go to the altar and get my heart right. But it's not about the altar for me. It's what I do when I leave the altar. See, God will work into the husband to lead his family properly. God will work into the wife to follow her husband. Single ladies, God will work into you in your relationship with him of how to find a real man of God. And for us single men, God is working into us to never compromise what he's given us so that when he brings the perfect woman to us, we cultivate her and help her be exactly what God has called her to be. So you know God is dealing with you right now. You do exactly what you have to do. From the moment I start praying to when Pastor Matthew strums his guitar, you run. You do exactly what the Holy Spirit is urging you to do.